We live in a part of the world that Harvard University biologist Joseph Henrik calls weird. Now, that's an acronym for nations that are Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. And he says part of the reason for the prosperity is a 600-year-old Catholic rule about whom we should and should not marry. Joseph is the author of the best-selling book, The Weirdest People in the World. He's in Australia this week to speak at the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. I've been looking at research and work suggesting that the structure of the family affects how people think, and growing up in different kinds of families can shape how we approach the world. Why were European families, especially in certain parts of Western Europe, tending to be monogamous nuclear families? But anthropologists know globally that's a very rare family structure. So if you look at a database of cultures that anthropologists have studied and, and documented around the world as combined with historical data, you find that it's very rare. So most societies don't have any of the kinds of kinship traits that we commonly associate with the structure of the families in the West. Now, many people think that that occurs after the Industrial Revolution, right? After Western societies start getting richer. But actually, it goes back way, way before that. And there was a particular set of taboos and prescriptions, prohibitions, you could think of them as, that the particular branch of Christianity that became the Roman Catholic Church began to impose upon the European populations that it was expanding into or had already conquered when it was part of the Roman Empire. So this program, which I call the marriage and family program, gets implemented gradually over a period of centuries in different parts of Europe. And you can say a lot about even contemporary Europe today by knowing about the distribution and spread of the Catholic Church in Europe. Yeah, well, one of the fascinating elements of the Catholic Church's approach to marriage and family, going back to the sort of five, six hundred years that you researched, was these taboos. And now there was a taboo particularly on marrying your cousin. First of all, why did they think that was a taboo? Lots of societies have incest taboos. And so the way to think about an incest taboo is we have innate machinery that helps us avoid having sex with very close relatives like brothers and sisters and parents. So that's that disgust reaction you get when you think about. But the societies have variously extended that to certain other relatives, and it's often extended to certain kinds of cousins. So those are typically by anthropologists called parallel cousins. And then people have preferred marriage partners with their what are called cross cousins. So these are two different kinds of cousins, but equidistant, right? Equidistance in terms of genetic distance. And what the church began to do was to taboo all marriages of first cousins, second cousins, and they gradually expanded the circle. So it included all the way out to six cousins at one point. And it also included spiritual relatives and in-laws, so affinial relatives. This helped show that it wasn't about any kind of genealogical relatedness concern, that it was about notions of social relatedness. But this forced people to marry more broadly. And as part of the stew that reduced European families down to monogamous nuclear families because it prevented them from building the links that so many other societies have built between families. It wasn't just a taboo on cousin marriages. Wasn't there the notion of, and it was um, in the church's interests, to spread Catholicism more broadly? And you do that by limiting the sort of marriage partners that you can meet in a very small area. Yeah. We don't know to what degree church leaders had this consciously in mind. I mean, there's a couple of quotes from Augustine of Hippo 
that suggest he kind of understood what was going on. But some of the other documents from the various incest councils where this was discussed repeatedly over church history, it doesn't appear that this was at the forefront of people's minds. But the idea is it may have actually contributed to the spread of the church by forcing people to marry other into other groups and then building connections. And then what those two people would have had in common was Christianity. So they would have had to forge new kinship practices based on what's common in Christianity. One of the other rules is you had to marry only other Christians. But this would have dissolved the tribal relationships. So if you if you know European Roman history, you might know about the Celts and the, the various tribes that populated Europe. And those all disappear. And one of the things that I think is typically how tribes disappear is when they start intermarrying. And Christianity would have provided a forum where once they're all Christianized, then they intermarry to avoid the relatives. Then the tribes don't make sense because everybody's intermarrying. Yeah, you say in the book that uh, Westerners became less tribal, more individualistic. I certainly see the loosening of those blood ties, but didn't this also mean forging different types of ties, new forms of association, new forms of solidarity, if you like? Yeah, exactly. So that's a key part of the story. So when you're broken down into monogamous nuclear families, you still have to make your way in the world and you still have to build new kinds of relationships. So part of the story is about the formation of impersonal institutions or impersonal institutions that aren't built around the idiom of kinship. Universities were built on this. There was a spread of new kinds of monasteries that were built on these kind of more impersonal rules. Charter towns began to proliferate. And then guilds, which were initially kind of mutual self-help organizations for strangers, you know, eventually they become occupational organizations, but they begin proliferating around 900, 1,000 CE. And how does this start to make the world, you can see where it makes the world more educated because I guess we become more curious. How does it make the world more industrialized? Well, actually, I mean, in the book, I make the case that actually you have to wait for Protestantism to get people a lot more educated and literate. Part of the story is, you know, there's this famous German sociologist named Max Weber. And Weber famously argued that Protestantism as a religion was core to the emergence of capitalism. So part of my endeavor was to show the current data supporting at least aspects of Weber's thesis, but then to say, how do you get Protestantism in the first place? So an extremely individualistic religion, you don't have intercessors between you and God, you don't have this communion of saints or this whole organization or anything like that. It's also mental state-based, so you get to heaven through faith alone, not through good works and faith like in Catholicism. So part of the story is you get this increasing amount of individualism, which opens the door for new kinds of faith. And then one of the things that Protestantism has that makes it so unusual is that everyone is, even women, are required to read the Bible for themselves and come to their own opinion. And the notion of a a religion where the average person's opinion matters is really something novel, I think. Anyway, so this ends up leading to high levels of literacy, not because people realize the value of education, but because they felt everyone should learn to read the Bible. And once you can read the Bible, you can read lots of other stuff. And so you get the rest for free. Do Westerners and non-Westerners think differently? So we have this label weird as a consciousness raising device. But one of the things I spend time on is showing that you can show variation using this idea just within Europeans. And you can also apply the idea to Africa by using historical Christian missions. You can apply it to India by looking at how rice agriculture affects kinship systems. And you can apply it to China by looking at the variation there. And in each case, 
you can show and explain psychological variation within each country. But yeah, so people do adapt to the institutions, languages, and technologies that they're grown up with. And this causes them to approach problems in different ways, trust strangers to different degrees, use intentions in making moral judgments to different degrees. They think about time differently. There's, there's this whole set of psychological differences that I lay out in the book. Yeah, this is fascinating. It opens up a whole new area of discussion for those of us who live in, you know, very healthy, thriving, multicultural societies, Australia, the United States, uh, Canada in particular. What happens when you get that mix of cultures? Do they feed off each other to build a stronger, more democratic polity? The details of that are, are highly variable. They certainly feed off each other at the level of innovation. So one of the things I take on in the book is why did the Industrial Revolution occur when and where it did? And there's now a large body of research suggesting that you know, the key to generating lots of innovation is to bringing together diverse minds and getting people to talk to each other over long distances or having people move across places, mobility, immigration, anything that gets the kind of free flow of ideas and, and ways of thinking across diverse populations can drive innovation. So in that sense, that kind of multiculturalism is the source of a lot of innovation. But of course, when people bring different norms and stuff, there's an adjustment period until you converge on the relevant norms, and that can cause social discord. Humans are innately inclined to sort of tribalize, so you're always trying to resist the tribalization inclinations that we see everywhere. There's been a lot of commentary about the decline of the West, the rise of South Asia and China. These are very socially conformist cultures, though, particularly China, does this mean, given their strength, that the notion of weird may have had its day, Joe? That's not how I think about it. So weird was a consciousness-raising device to get people to think about their experiments. The way I think about the direction that different communities in the world are going is that it's more of the same in the sense of more cultural evolution. So somewhere like Japan was extremely culturally different from Western Europe. But then around 1880 in the Meiji Restoration, it began literally in some cases copying Western civil codes, Western practices, ways of doing things. And then, of course, after World War II, it, it adopted a whole bunch of stuff from the United States through force. And so what, what's emerged now is neither what they had before, you know, traditional Japanese ways of doing things, or the ways of the West. It's a new recombination. It's a new set of institutions that's going to create a psychology that doesn't look Western, but also doesn't look like traditional Japanese psychology. I mean, that's the way to think about it is something new has been created and there will be competition among societies as there always is. Something new has been created in China as well that has elements of traditional Chinese, but has also lots of Western elements. So the way they do universities, for example, aspects of the organization, the economy. So it's a new recombination. So we'll see how these different systems compete. On the flip side, Joe, I'm also looking at the resurgence of nationalism in Europe, which was the historic heartland of Christianity. Are these societies now losing what you say is a central feature of being quote unquote weird, and that is openness to the stranger? Yes, that's right. And, you know, of course, we've seen a lot of that in the US. And that's one of the questions that we've been focusing on in my lab is, one of the features of psychology that I'm interested in is uh, moral psychology. So 
roughly moral psychologists have given us uh, some scales that allow us to measure people's psychology and put them on a scale from more morally universalistic to more morally parochial. Just in the U.S., you can see since 2008 that there's been a decline or a movement towards more moral parochialism, away from moral universalism in rural areas. Now, the urban areas of the U.S. have remained the same or even gone up in their degree of moral universalism. So anyway, you have this growing divide between rural and urban areas that's strikingly clear. So that's definitely happening. And then, of course, we ask, well, why is that happening? One is weather shocks. Weather shocks in general and climate change intensifies that. Places that are getting hit harder by weather shocks seem to be suffering more of this moral parochialism. Uh, Reductions in mobility, when people don't move around as much, you get more moral parochialism. Economic shocks can also do this. So we, we have some ideas about why that might be happening, but we definitely see it in the data. Professor Joe Henrik of Harvard University. He's a leading human evolutionary biologist. Joe's book is The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Weird is an acronym. Joe will be uh, speaking in Australia also at the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. Thank you for joining us on the program, Joe. Yeah, it was great to be with you. 